27 and verse 62, and we'll read all the way through to Matthew chapter 28 and verse 15. So that's page 1000 in the church Bibles, and uh, Matthew chapter 27, and we'll begin to read at verse 62. At uh, this point in the story, um, Jesus has been laid in the tomb and the uh, narrator of the events, uh, Matthew, picks up the story like this. The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. So, give the order for the tomb to remain secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He is risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into this city and reported to the chief priests, everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. And here we end a reading of God's Word. It would be helpful if you could keep a copy of the Scriptures open in front of you, and that way you're able to check that what I'm um, saying from it actually comes from God's Word, rather than being my own opinion that I made up myself. I think if you were to ask folk on the street outside what was right at the heart of the Christian faith, they would probably come up with a wide variety of different answers, wouldn't they? I think perhaps most might immediately think of the moral teachings of Christianity. 
like the importance of loving one another. Or maybe perhaps one of the more modern virtues, like a tolerance or acceptance or not being judgmental. I think that some might come up with something more institutional, perhaps something to do with the church, perhaps something like communion, or maybe even some kind of Christian uh, ritual, like the uh, baptisms which we've seen this morning. I, I would hope that at least some would probably connect the essence of Christianity with its, with its founder, Jesus Christ. I might maybe talk about some of his teachings or some of his miracles, things like the feeding of the, of the 5,000 or the fact that he claimed to be God. What I wonder though is how many would come up with the real heart of Christianity, which according to the Bible is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says that the whole of Christianity either stands or falls on this one key, crucial, historical event. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then his claims to be God are vindicated, and he is worthy of our worship and our devotion. If he didn't, then certainly we as Christians are all wasting our time and should all give up and go home. In the words of the uh, Apostle Paul, one of the earliest preachers of Christianity, we are to be pitied above all men. We are sadly deluded and our faith is futile. My uh, younger brother is currently living and working in China. And this week he bought a fish tank. He took it back to his uh, apartment and filled it with 20 jugs of water and then went to bed. He said that when he woke up the next morning, the floor was very wet, the flat below was flooded, and there was no water left in the fish tank. Now that fish tank is a little bit like Christianity without the resurrection. It is totally useless, it is fundamentally flawed, and it holds out no hope at all for those unfortunate creatures on the inside. However, the message of this passage this morning in Matthew is that the tank doesn't leak. There is evidence for the resurrection. It is secure and it is something that we can put our hope in and that we can build our lives on. The fact that Jesus was raised from the dead means that we can be accepted by God and that we have hope in the face of death when we put our trust in him. So then what I would like to do is look uh, briefly first of all at uh, evidence for the resurrection and then after that move on to consider some of the implications that it has for each of our lives. So then, first of all, the evidence for the resurrection. And in these uh, verses that we read together, the writer of them, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Matthew gives us two key pieces of evidence for it and invites us to kind of discover them for ourselves in, in the same way that the two women did on that first Easter morning. The first of them is the empty tomb. The women had uh, watched a couple of days earlier as Jesus had been laid in the tomb and this uh, giant stone slab had been rolled over the entrance. However, now on Easter morning, they uh, make their way to the tomb to uh, see it and to pay their respects. When they 
arrived though, they are astonished to find that the stone rolled away with an, an angel relaxing on it, taking a seat. And a group of absolutely terrified Roman guards. The angel told them, Jesus is no longer here. He is risen, just like he said. And he asked the women to come in and see for themselves and investigate the tomb and have a look if they wanted. You can see that there in the the end of verse 6 where it says, come and see the place where he lay. He was asking them to check out the evidence. You see, I think we sometimes mistakenly think that the angel rolled the stone away to let Jesus out. However, that isn't true. The stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. The stone was rolled away to let us see in. We know from other places that with his new resurrection body, Jesus could easily walk through walls, so getting out of this stone tomb was no problem. Instead, you see, the stone was rolled away for us, for our benefit. It allows us to see in and certify with these women that Jesus isn't there. He's risen. We ought to note, too, from this story, that even the enemies of Christianity acknowledged that the tomb was empty. Both the Jewish authorities and the Roman guards knew that the tomb was empty, and so they had to come up with an alternative explanation. They couldn't just produce a corpse and say, well, here he is after all. Instead, even the enemies are saying, the tomb is empty, guys. You see, folk may have differing explanations of what happened, but pretty much everyone, atheists, agnostics, and Christians alike, acknowledged that by Easter morning, Jesus wasn't there. Jesus had gone. The tomb was empty. So that's the first piece of evidence that Matthew gives us, the empty tomb. Number two is the risen Christ. Now there are obviously lots of different explanations as to what has happened to uh, why the tomb was empty. One of the oldest, the one that we see here, and we have to say the least plausible, is the idea that that, that the Jewish authorities came up with here, the suggestion that the disciples had stolen Jesus' dead body. Now, I think it really would be miraculous if a group of faithful and terrified disciples were able to take on a group of fully armed Roman soldiers whose lives depended on it and moved a huge stone in the middle of the night. It would be even more incredible still if they were to spend the rest of their lives, and in many cases going to their deaths, for preaching something that they knew to be absolutely false and that didn't happen. So a much more likely and straightforward explanation is the one that we read here in God's Word, that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead and appeared to his followers. Again, in the story that we read, no sooner had these women left the tomb than they met the risen Lord Jesus. It it says, um, if we look at it, verse 9, they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. They prostrated themselves and worshipped the Lord Jesus. It's interesting to note, too, that they clasped his feet. You see, you can't clasp the feet of a ghost or a hallucination, can you? To clasp someone's feet, they have to be physical and real. Again, Matthew's given us evidence that Jesus was alive and physical and not just a kind of vague, disembodied spirit or just living on in the memories of of his followers. He's ruling all those options out for us. 
And so the first question that I'd like to ask you all this morning is this. Have you ever investigated the evidence about Jesus for yourself? Or do you pretty much rely on what you were brought up with, what you um, hear from other people, or perhaps what you pick up from the media? Have you ever investigated the evidence about Jesus for yourself? Because what Matthew's saying here is that there was an empty tomb and a whole host of witnesses are telling us that Jesus rose again. We can read the accounts in the Gospels, we can think about all the different explanations and the alternatives. We can weigh them up. The evidence is there. We can investigate what happened um, on that first Easter morning using the historical documents that we have in front of us. So have you investigated it? If so, what do you think happened? Do you believe that the tomb was empty? If so, what happened to the corpse? Is it plausible that the disciples stole it? Or is it more likely that his claims to be God were actually true and that he rose from the dead? Your answer to that question will have implications for you. What do you think? Have you investigated the evidence for yourself? So then I'd like to move on now and try and draw out some of the implications of the resurrection for us. How does that first Easter all those years ago affect us now more than two millennia later on? So we come to point number two, the implications of the resurrection. And I think the major implication of Jesus' resurrection for us is that it proves that Jesus' death was successful. You know, often in our minds we separate out the resurrection from the crucifixion. But I I wonder if that's really accurate, because they're actually both part of the same package. You can't just have one, really, without the other. In order to make sense, you need them both. If you like, the resurrection acts as a sort of crowning glory or proof that the death of Jesus was sufficient and actually worked. And what the resurrection does is it guarantees us two things. First of all, acceptance with God. When one of the early Christian preachers, Paul, was explaining the uh, resurrection in one of his letters called Romans, he said this, this is Romans chapter 4 and verse 25, where he says that Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins, that is crucified, and was raised to life for our justification. Now the word justification there probably needs some explanation. All it really means is to have a right relationship with God. And so what this verse is saying is that Jesus died for our sins and was then raised to life in order to bring us into a new, a living, a kind of right relationship, a new standing with God. I have a friend who's a member of the National Institute of Directors. And one of the perks of that is that he gets access to those really fancy airport lounges that are normally only reserved for company directors. And when I'm travelling with him, he is able to sign me in. It's really the only time that I like it when my flights are cancelled or delayed. You get free food and drinks, you get big armchairs, you get 
peace and quiet, lots of television channels, computer games, um, and great views of the aeroplanes. You can sleep or even take a shower if you want. And someone even comes around specially and tells you when your aircraft is ready for boarding. Now normally, I would get turned away at the door. But because they accept my friend, they accept me as well. My friend gets in because of his job, what he has done. I get in because I happen to be one of his friends. And I think there's something important here. That is a great picture of the resurrection. Jesus gets accepted back into heaven because of what he has done. And then we get to go in as well if we are his friends. You see, naturally, we are not acceptable to God because we are steeped in sin and rebellion from birth. We are not allowed into heaven and we feel alienated from God in the world as we go through life. However, the resurrection is proof that God has accepted Christ's sacrifice on our behalf and God has promised to accept us if we are Jesus' friends, if we put our trust in him, if our faith is in him. And the results of that are that we'll be welcomed into heaven and can enjoy fellowship with God here on earth. So then, first of all, Jesus' resurrection guarantees our acceptance with God. The uh, next thing that uh, Jesus' resurrection guarantees is hope in death. I'm told that death is one of the biggest killers in the world. Statistically, my younger brother, who works with these things, tells me that one in one people will die at some point in their lives. I'm told that three people in the world die every second, which adds up, if you do your maths, and again, it was him, not me, to 95 million every year. According to the Bible, God's word, death is the big enemy of the human race. It wasn't originally part of God's perfect plan, but kind of came into the world, sneaked in as an illegal immigrant, an alien, along with sin. However, the resurrection proves that Jesus has defeated it, that he's laid waste to it. In taking sin and judgment on himself, he's removed them from us and brought hope and life. Again, elsewhere in the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 3 says that God in his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this is the point I really want to leave with you. Jesus Christ has taken care of death. He has taken care of that great enemy. We know this because he rose from the dead, proving his victory and his authority over it. And that means that we no longer need to live bound up in it for this life or enslaved to fear. The way that God's word describes Jesus' resurrection is as a kind of first fruits. And what it means by that is that the resurrection acts as a guarantee that at the end of time we will be resurrected as well. He was the pioneer. The fact that it's happened to him means that it's going to happen to us one day as well. We have hope for beyond the grave. Just as he was raised, so will we be also. Um, just before Christmas, I went to the big Aztec exhibition in London. 
think it was at the Royal uh, Academy or something. And the thing that struck me about what was an amazing exhibition was that the way that the whole of Aztec society was obsessed with death. They had all kinds of death masks. And they lived in constant fear of the gods and the spirits of the underworld and the spiritual world that existed beyond. An important part of their religion was human sacrifice where they regularly sacrificed people to placate the anger of their gods and keep them on side. And in the exhibition it had uh, pictures of their uh, knives and different archaeological um, things that described the uh, techniques for how it all happened and the beliefs that underlay it. Now, in the culture that we come from, we're not obsessed by death in the same way, but nonetheless it retains its power over us. We may not talk about it or mention it in polite company. But that doesn't mean that it has gone away. However, in Christ, all that can dramatically change. Sure, we may die, but the fear is gone. Paul says that Jesus has removed its sting. He has broken its power. If we trust in Christ, all of us can stare a death in the face, knowing with confidence what lies on the other side of the grave. You see, God's done everything necessary. He has paid the price. He has made the sacrifice. He has sent his son. He has done everything necessary on our behalf. He has defeated death. And the dramatic proof, the culmination and the climax of all this is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this morning, we have an opportunity to respond to this. The passage that we read gives us two contrasting responses. One to avoid and want to embrace. The response to avoid is that of the Jewish authorities with their excuses and their opposition to the Lord Jesus. They had all the evidence and yet they were so opposed to Jesus that they were more willing to make up a lie and live by that than believe the truth. You see, at the end of the day, evidence will only take you so far there will always be that final decision about whether you are going to trust or whether you are going to turn around and walk on past or walk away. If you are a thinking person who has a brain at all, you can always find an excuse for walking away. However, most of the time, our problem is not that it isn't true, but it's more that we are just not prepared to face up to the truth. Our problems tend not to be intellectual, but moral. At the end of the day, we just don't want to go God's way. We want to do our own thing. As Neil put it so brilliantly, it was his pride that held him back for years. Maybe he was worried about losing face or having to admit that he he was wrong and that these Christians were right after all. Couldn't face that. Perhaps some of us are worried about what we might have to give up, things in our lives that maybe we know we'll have to a change. None of us likes handing over control of our life to someone else, least of all God. However, none of those things should stop us. They are minor things when compared to the importance of living the truth and coming to know Jesus for ourselves. I don't make excuses. Please don't. It's just simply not worth it given the gravity and the importance of the thing that is there. Instead, come to Christ. Come to Christ today. 
The response to embrace, on the other hand, is that of the women. When they met Jesus, like we read, they bowed down, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And that same Jesus is alive today, and, and he is the one who calls us this morning. He is still meeting people in the world today, in this church here, and in many others, in Edinburgh and throughout the globe, confronting them with his truth through his word, speaking to people through his Holy Spirit, and calling them to that same response that these women had of worship and submission to him. He's probably been calling some folk here this morning through the baptisms, through the testimonies of the candidates, and maybe even through something I've said uh, from God's word over the last 20 minutes or so. He stands before us, the risen Lord Jesus, offering us acceptance with God, forgiveness for our rebellion, and hope in the face of death. So, how will we respond? The evidence is there. Will we respond like the Jewish authorities and come up with some other explanation for who he is and what he has done? Or will we respond like the women, by taking him at his word and coming to worship him and receiving the joy and the hope that he offers? If you do that this morning, you will discover that right at the heart of Christianity is not moral teaching or a church ritual or communion or even just knowledge and information and facts about Jesus but it's a real living relationship with a real person who really is alive right now, today. And that is what Easter is all about. That is what the resurrection is all about. That is what Christianity is all about. And maybe most importantly of all, that is what life is all about. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting. Thanks be to God, for he gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.